At the start of the last decade, Dan Ariely said that behavioural science was like teenage sex. Many say they are doing it, but very few actually are. Fast forward 10 years, and we now have over 600 teams around the world applying the science, but not without its challenges. So whilst the industry has the potential for a huge impact, we sure have some growing pains to go through first. Growing pains that are better out than in. Join me as I speak with 20 behavioural science leaders on the challenges they face with applying the science, getting it off their chests, all with the hope that together we might learn something that nudges us along. So if you're already applying behavioural science, or if you're about to start, this is a podcast for you. So, you might ask, why the podcast on the growing pains of the applied behavioural science industry? For the last nine years, I've been busy applying the science at the behavioural science practice at Ogilvy. And like all of us practitioners, I've had a lot to learn from applying the behavioural science to many different organisations. But I think the tide has changed now, and that we have more to learn from each other than we do from our individual projects. And the hope for this podcast is that it helps us practitioners have more of those conversations. Welcome to Growing Pains. Welcome back. In the last episode, we talked a lot about soft skills, about being humble, about communicating well, and the importance of being able to work with people and do partner relationships very well. In this episode, we're talking about getting it right within your organisation, and whether behavioural science teams should even be led by behavioural scientists themselves. First up, we're going to speak again to Juliet Hodges, a behavioural scientist at Bupa. Jules, what does great senior buy-in look like at Bupa? Yeah, I think within Bupa, there's kind of lots of different organisations almost. So it's quite a nice way of testing what works in different parts of the organisation. And actually, I think the most fundamental thing is having somebody who really gets it and really sees, you know, can kind of think behaviourally, like we were talking about, where they do see the value that behavioural science could bring to their specific area of the business and can give you briefs that are pretty fully formed and you don't need to go through the whole rigmarole of um, really distilling it down into behaviour. So you need someone like that. They need to be senior enough that they have access to lots of different briefs for you. Um, you know, it's, it's fine having someone who just works on their own projects and having access to those. But ideally, you want someone who's quite high up and can make lots of introductions and, and get you really embedded in that, that part of the business. And you walk across many parts of the business. How do you know when you've got that great stakeholder? What are the factors? So the parts of the business where I can see we've made the most difference as a behavioural insights team are where we have that one stakeholder who can really see the value and really pushes it and will give you briefs every quarter or so that you can just get on with. And what do you think are the characteristics and say identifiers of those types of people? <laughs> Sometimes it's just someone who's quite pushy and wants all the extra resource they can get. And that's why they're kind of coming to you for a lot of um, a lot of different projects we definitely have a few of those but I think sometimes it, it's just the way that they think and maybe it's a kind of personal interest in behavioral science so maybe they get it a bit better because they've read misbehaving or predictably irrational or whatever um, but yeah I, I actually don't know if there's anything that really unites them all but I do think some people just really get it and actually it'd probably be helpful to understand a bit more about why that is so we can replicate it in other teams. 
So we've spoken a lot about senior stakeholders, but clearly there are lots of people around us that we need to make this work. Next up, we're speaking to Abigail Dalton, who's Head of Behavioural Science at the World Bank. Abigail, how do you see stakeholder management within the organisation? Just as important, depending on what kind of intervention you're trying to run, are the people who um, are sort of on the ground. Uh, I'm going to say the IT department, because I think a lot of what we do is like who develops the you know, um, email messages, who has all the emails, who has addresses, who you know, understands the data, um, and working with them and getting their acceptance and buy-in of what you're trying to do, because you're going to take a lot of their time and, and you're going to ask them for things that you know, maybe they don't fully understand why you need them or why you would want to change them. Uh, and so I think both of those together, uh, buy-in obviously at the senior level and then also sort of at the, at the level of the people who, who really need to do the work um, are both sort of equally important. That makes a lot of sense. It's clearly important to get the right senior stakeholders on board, but it's also equally important to make sure that those around you are also on board. Now, counterintuitively, it may also make sense to not engage some stakeholders along the way. Dan Berry, who's Head of Behavioural Science at NHSX, tells us more. I'd say my, my experience in the civil service, when we, so we set up the team in the Department of Health in 2012, and uh, there it was set up because we had very senior buy-in. There were two very senior people in the sort of public health part of the Department of Health then. Um, I won't name names, but one one was really keen. I think she had, you know, read Thinking Fast and Slow or come across some of the underlying science and, and was enthusiastic. So it was really her... Uh, permission to set up a small team that really got that got us going and allowed us just to you know cut us some slack to find some projects make some mistakes you know maybe pick things up and drop them again when they didn't seem right um, so that was really important and then there was another senior person in the public health part of the department of health who was massively more skeptical cynical I think she did see it as just some of the latest sort of management bullshit flavor of the month stuff and uh, we didn't get her buy-in so much, but we got her just permission just to, for her to ignore us, I suppose. Which, um, of course, isn't, this isn't a commercial organisation, but it was really just then, OK, you just go away and do your thing, and I'll, you can come back to me in a year or 18 months with some evidence. So it was less enthusiastic buy-in and more, OK, go away and do it then, I don't care enough to pay attention, but... I will do in a year, 18 months. And of course, that then created some pressure to have some measurable results by then. But uh, just reflecting back, there was those two types of senior support and they, were, they, they felt very different at the time. One was super keen and like a big hug and the other was uh, not that. So sometimes it might be right to go for full visibility and sometimes it might be right to kind of just stuck under the radar for a little while. So assuming you're inside now and you've got great senior stakeholders and they fully endorse what you do, how close do you want them involved in what you're doing day to day? Next, we speak to Matt Battersby, the Chief Behavioural Scientist at the Insurance Group, RGA. So Matt, you started a new team within RGA. How directive were the senior stakeholders about exactly what they wanted the behavioural science team to be? Yeah, absolutely. So um, RGA decided they wanted the behavioural science function. Um, and had an idea of what, why they wanted that function and kind of sort of the macro challenges to focus on, but were also very willing to bring someone in to, to lead that, build that and really 
decide what that strategy looked like. So have, had an overall kind of vision and goals, but actually then the strategy was left to me as the, as the chief behavioral scientist to, to design that. And for me, this is worked out, I think is, that is the perfect thing. So you have an organization who has decided that they want to need something. So they, from a senior level, you already have that kind of buy-in and, and focus behind it. Um, but then also the realization that they need a behavioral science actually to, to scope that out. You know, you, you can't be completely prescriptive of we need we need a behavioral science function to do this list of 50 things um, because they didn't know exactly what it could do and what the potential of it was. Um, yeah, so I think that's quite a progressive way of, of approaching behavioral science in an organization. So there's a great balance there, a belief in what the team can achieve, but also the freedom to go and figure out how to best achieve it. Not everybody gets that exact situation to thrive within. Next, we speak with Sam Tatum, who's our global head of behavioral science at Ogilvy. So Sam, what's one to do when they don't have the senior buy-in that they need? I had actually a really interesting call, uh, I think a couple of days ago with a, with a, with a partner in a, in a, in a legal firm. Um, and uh, she had been in charge of broader uh, organizational change within the firm um, and has been a sort of a big advocate of behavioral science for some time and, and is, has just been experimenting uh, in her day-to-day -day, uh, at, at work. And what was really interesting that she found was um, on, on, a, on a recent initiative she deployed many different tactics uh, along the journey. She didn't tell management uh, initially what she was doing, but she, she did it um, organically and, and tested and iterated and, and actually following, um, following the success of her initiative, it's only then that she told management what she had done. Deploy it and then tell people what you deployed. So, buy-in and alignment is clearly important at several different levels. Whether that's ensuring that you align with the organization's culture, whether that's strong senior buy-in and also buy-in from those around you as well, from other teams that can help you get your work done, or even whether it's simply a permission to be ignored or to go undercover for a short time. So now we've talked about how to align with the organisation, we'll now go on to talk about some of the harder skills needed to get behavioural science off the ground. Next up we have Stephen Wendell, who's Head of Behavioural Science at Morningstar. So Stephen, when it comes to the hard skills involved with applying behavioural science, where do we need to start looking? Um, I, I think we all, behavioural scientists or not, um, it helps to understand our own limitations. And for some of us, that would be, like me, business savvy. And so I'm not a business person. There have been times in my career where I've tried to bid, and it has been a, it, it just hasn't worked out well. Let's just put it that way. And so for me, what I've found is I can partner with those people who are just much smarter than I am. That's great. It's not that I have to be more business savvy. I need to be a little more humble and to find the people who fill in the gaps, fill in my gaps, and I fill in theirs. And so I started a, a company many years ago with a great business guy because I sure couldn't, right? And I was the research guy and he was the business guy. Cool, right? And um, at Morningstar, they're really thoughtful people who know the business and I say, look, I got these ideas. Are these ever going to fly? Are these ever going to work? And they'll tell me, right? And then we partner and work together on that. So sometimes, yes, you need to be the one person who is the crusader who does everything. But I think that's, that's not a great model for most folks. Instead, just understand what you're good at 
and what you're not and go look for people who can get excited about this and can see their own success in this endeavor. Not your success, but their success in it. And you fill in each other's gaps. So there's a big opportunity here for some of us to be honest with ourselves and to say we can't do it all alone. An admission that each of us have our own set of super strengths and they can never be everything. So if we take this idea that those leading applied behavioural science practices might not have to be behavioural scientists, I'm curious to know what the benefits might be. So next up we have Steve Martin, who's CEO of Influence at Work. So Steve, what are the benefits about not being led by a behavioural scientist? Those people that are leading the charge for behavioural science that aren't necessarily behavioural scientists themselves tend to have this ability to get behavioural science involved in projects much earlier in the process than the behavioral scientists themselves and i i know we're on zoom at the moment so you can i can see you both nodding and i I think all of us have got probably dozens of experiences where we've been called into an organization or been called into consulting a project towards the end of it almost to kind of repair it in some way or get it back on track actually say, well, we've done all the research, we've done all the insight work, this is our strategy, we've done this, that, and the other. Could you come polish it for us with your behavioral science nudges and insights? And slap a nudge on your, there. Yeah, slap a nudge on there. Do that mysterious thing that, that you know, that, that organization, yeah. that study yeah. you did that was all quirky that made the papers, could you come and do that for us? And actually, yeah. I, th- I think that, you know, to have that or to take that agnostic position or at least have someone who represents it, represents that agnostic position probably could do a far better job of actually ensuring that we are including much, much earlier in the process. Probably because they're just more savvy in business and they probably understand how to sell a whole piece of consultancy. And that seems fair. A lot of the work that we see is more end-of-the-line tactical work rather than anything bigger and upstream within the deeper within an organisation. Steve, you're a CEO of Influence at Work, and you're also a very well-known behavioural scientist. Where does that leave you? I've taken that to heart, actually. Uh, in, in, in a couple of weeks' time, we've just appointed a new COO at Influence at Work who is not a behavioural scientist, and we deliberately set out to find someone that wasn't a behavioural scientist. I've got, I mean, you know some of them, Dan. I've got some brilliant behavioural scientists in, in my organisation in the same way as you have in yours. Um, Having a behavioral scientist lead a group of behavioral scientists doesn't seem to make particularly good strategic sense to me. Um, so I, I think that's th- that's one thing immediately that I think will add some credibility uh, to those organizations that actually do sell behavioral science services is that they're led by someone who is a business leader, not necessarily uh, another choir member. So take a look around you. Is everyone in your team another choir member, or do you have a diverse mix of skill sets that can really make behavioural science thrive? Also, how are your stakeholder relationships? Do you have strong relationships with those above you who can open up new briefs? Do you have good relationships with those around you that can really help operationalise what you do? Or are you an undercover behavioural scientist, building up their evidence case, waiting to strike? Doing great work clearly speaks for itself, but having some of these strong relationships can also be the lifeline that we need. And auditing our skill sets, whether you're a leader of the team or a behavioural scientist in play, can mean that we can all make sure we can bring in the complementary skill sets that we need to be successful. In our next episode, we have one of the most contentious topics in our field right now. How rigorous should one be?
and we're going to speak to people from all of the different sides to figure out what the answer might be. On the one side we have do it fast, suck it in see, get stuff out there in the world and on the other side we have make sure we do it correctly so our fields actually have some foundations to sit upon. I'm really looking forward to thinking about that one further. I'll see you next week.